Hello and welcome to the Technicast. I'm Julien Klein and today we continue on the theme of music. In a previous episode, Keanu Farrell discussed the ecological materiality of digital music and how it can activate connections with the world. Today, Ruth Hansford explores the materiality of music in a different way, through musicians' relationship with their ears and with their hearing. Most of us have heard of Beethoven's deafness, but all musicians' hearing, just like everyone else's, deteriorates over time, primarily through age and especially through noise. So how do musicians keep playing? What techniques do they develop to counter the effects of deteriorating hearing? And what do cocktail parties have to do with it? Well, here is Ruth now in conversation with former Technicast editor Joe Langton, recorded over Zoom. I'm really delighted to be talking with Ruth Hansford, whose work I've been familiar with for a long time. And this is a great opportunity to find out more about her PhD. So Ruth, first of all, Can you tell me what the final working title is for your PhD? The working title at the moment is What Does It Mean to Have a Musician's Ear? Question mark, Listening to Musicians. Um, But I also have a a title that I I really like the sound of, which is um, The Musician at the Cocktail Party, which I'll explain a little bit about in due course. So when we talk about musicians and their ears and their hearing problems. We often think about Beethoven or Evelyn Glennie, but surely they must be the exception. I first got interested in musicians and their relationship with their ears back in 2008 when I was at the BBC looking at the control of noise at work regulations in the context of the orchestras and choirs. And people would always ask me about Beethoven and Evelyn Glennie, the two probably the most famous deaf musicians. And there have been lots of theories about Beethoven's deafness and the causes and the treatments. And one theory that was that it was due to lead poisoning from um, cheap wine. They used to add lead to make rough wine taste smoother. Um, another theory is that he sustained a head injury from being beaten around the head by his violent father. We don't actually know, but there is one thing for me that really stands out, that in spite of all his hearing problems, he carried on being a musician. Admittedly, later on, not a performer, but he had been a performer, but he was still a musician. And the other one is Evelyn Glennie. She lost her hearing when she had mumps as a child, and again carried on being a musician at the highest level. So even though their hearing had gone, um, they were still musicians. Much more common those than mumps or um, lead poisoning or head injuries are just age and noise. So that was really the thing behind my PhD project. I'm very aware that musicians have long careers and keep on going until way past the retirement age, if they retire at all. And of course, being in the middle of an orchestra is quite noisy, on top of the everyday noise that you have to endure if you live in London or you go in the tube or you go into pubs or noisy restaurants before lockdown put a stop to that, obviously. Um, There are lots of other things that are bad for our ears as well, like flying, smoking, bad luck genes but let's let's just concentrate on noise and age um 
I started off my PhD by doing a big roundup of the numbers relating to musicians' hearing and noise exposure of musicians. And then I conducted some interviews with 13 musicians, all classical or professional musicians and still active as performers or sound engineers or, or both. And I asked them about how their relationship with their ears has changed over time and a result, as a result of all these occupational hazards that they're exposed to. And I think what happens is that the skill of listening takes over as as the sense of hearing deteriorates over time. And and how can you avoid noise or, or being surrounded by noise if you if you play in an orchestra? Well you can't. Nobody can avoid noise. Somebody one of my interviewees said to me, Our industry is noise. Um but the musicians that I talked to didn't used to go to head banging concerts, although some of them maybe did in their youth but they certainly don't do it anymore and they but they don't like iPods either earbuds um so they won't go looking for noise but if you play in in a pit orchestra if you play the viola and I interviewed four who were or are um viola players you know that there are going to be some days when you're in a lot of noise and one of them said the about the brass and woodwind players all they're doing is their job. They're only doing their job. There's much more, I think, awareness of this than there used to be. I watched um, a, a TV recording of um, the Verdi Requiem from the 1960s with Giulini with the Philharmonia Orchestra in the Festival Hall, and they were doing the Verdi Requiem and the Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath. Um, he he the Giulini is silent for ages and ages psyching himself up and then all hell breaks loose and you've got the trumpets blasting out and the singers yelling their heads off um and the orchestra's really tightly packed together much more so than they would be now and the trumpets are just really going for it and the bassoonists are just sitting right in front of the trumpets maybe a foot away from the bell of the trumpet and they the bassoonists don't move a muscle they don't flinch they don't bat an eyelid they just play their bit when their turn comes and just sit waiting and I often wonder what those guys hearing would be like after a career doing that kind of thing and it wasn't even in a pit um you know some um opera and ballet music is very heavily orchestrated and very 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 loud indeed you know when there's a crowd scene or a fight or a procession or the ride of the valkyries for example in wagner where you haven't got the just the trombones blasting out the famous tune but you've also got the flutes and the piccolos and the oboes swirling around but one thing about classical music um it's written down and you rehearse it and you know how it goes so if you know what's coming you they will mark up their part in the score and they'll put bang or earplugs in so that they know to protect themselves ahead of time and even even with great hearing it it must be hard to hear each other in a in an orchestra how how do they do that yeah um it is. I mean, even with the best hearing in the world, you can't actually hear yourself when you're in the middle of an orchestra often. And um, But the musicians that I interviewed say that they rely on their eyes a lot. You know, they catch the bow movements of the um, 
people on the other side of the orchestra or they watch their breathing you know they watch their rib, rib cages move and 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 the other thing about not being able to hear is they rely on muscle memory so they um you know they have a memory of how it felt when they were sounding how they like to sound the other thing that some musicians that I've talked to over the years actually not just my interviewees they latch on to these theories about noise and hearing that if one is that if you like the noise like the music it doesn't harm you you know um, the idea that the limbic system which is a bit of your brain that supports um, your emotions that's thought to protect have some kind of protective role and another idea is the stupidious reflex which um, protects you this is the mechanism whereby um, the stapedius muscle in the middle ear contracts to disengage the three tiny bones that transmit the sounds to the inner ear. So that's the hammer, the anvil and the stapes. And now that theory it would be great if it worked for longer than a nanosecond, but alas, it depends on a muscle, so it's going to get tired. So it's not ideal. However, one um, conductor told me that how he learned to protect his ears in the pit by yawning which is something he'd learnt to do as a kid when he used to play under railway arches and things like that and big Soviet trains used to go by and he put that skill or that trick into practice in the pit at Glyndebourne actually. That's amazing because I remember doing that as a child as well just just as a, a fun game yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's experience and, and age, that, um, which is also bad for your ears, as we know. Yes, and, and, and what can you do about ageing ears? Is, isn't that inevitable as well? I mean, we all know people who turn the telly up as they get older. Yeah, well, obviously, that's another thing. You can't stop ageing. Um, but musicians, as I say, do carry on. You know, some conductors go on until they're 90 and they've had a whole orchestra blasting into their heads so it is very curious really maybe yawning does pay off um it, it is true that um, your hearing deteriorates with age you lose the ability to hear high frequencies the ones that are useful for speech as in consonants sh and f and t and things like that and what musicians often say is that their hearing is great for music but they struggle to hear speech in noise and I see that as well. They can pick out musical notes or phrases or pictures or whatever, but they often don't hear speech. And several have said to me how they hate it when the conductor talks in a rehearsal. Why is he just talking to the front row? Or why doesn't he speak up? Usually he, actually. The other thing, as well as that kind of music chat, is social chat. One of my interviewees said how... He'd noticed his colleagues stopped coming to the canteen or the pub. I was in the days when there was a lot more kind of post-rehearsal concert drinking than there is now. Um, but if you stop coming to the pub, you miss out on a lot of the social side of being a musician. And musicians are very sociable people. So um, many of them say how the best thing about being a musician is that, you know, the playing together. Um, or even that, that playing together is the point of being a musician. That's interesting, and so so is that why you like the the other title that that you said at the beginning, the the musician at the cocktail party. 
Yeah, yeah, the cocktail party effect. This is your ability to pick out information in noise. So, you know, when you're at a cocktail party and you're in one conversation and somebody over the other side of the room says your name or tells some juicy gossip and you tune in immediately. And that is a skill that gets it gets harder as you lose your ability to, uh, to hear the high frequencies so the those t and the sh and the, and all those things so and that again with age so if you don't go to cocktail parties or parties or canteens you miss out on those you know the gigs the tip-offs the gossip and takes a lot of the fun out of it but the other thing of uh, the cocktail party thing is I've noticed how musicians are really great at telling each other stories and, you know, often they tell the same story that changes subtly as it does the rounds, stories that don't quite add up or stories that go on for ages or stories just to, tell, to pass the time, really. These people are really expert storytellers in my view. And, and so is that where um, Walter Benjamin comes in, in in your research? Yes, yeah, I, that's that kind of storytelling thing. My background is in languages and literature. So, you know, listening is quite an important thing for me and listening to stories in particular. Um, and when I was a student, everybody read, probably still do, Walter Benjamin's Illuminations, which, of course, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction is the most famous one. But there was another um, essay in that collection, The Storyteller, which was about Lescoff, Nikolai Lescoff, who wrote loads and loads of really rambling, sprawly stories, including the one on which um, Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk was based. And because I never um, really knew very much about Shostakovich's operas, I didn't read that one. But then just at the beginning of my PhD, I read this serendipitously, really, in the um, London Review of Books or somewhere. There was an article about this essay, The Storyteller. So I reread it and I thought, actually, this is really going to help me with my PhD because what um, Benjamin talks about is is how Lescoff writes these really rambling stories you've got lots of really larger than life characters stories that don't have a beginning and a middle and an end and but the other thing is the kind of people who um benjamin says leskoff writes st these stories for they're artisans my musicians they're artisans too they call themselves craftspeople. they work with their hands they become experts over a long apprenticeship long period of learning their craft and they never really stop learning their craft. And also in terms of lifestyle, they sit around a lot, hang out in green rooms, hang out on tour buses, eating together. And it's not really like a typical office. And I thought these people are my artisans. So that is exactly why I thought of Benjamin. Um, and I think the other thing for me about Benjamin is what Hannah Arendt says in her introduction to Illuminations, that he was nobody's disciple. He wasn't a musician. He wasn't a philosopher. He was a literary critic. He was an essayist, a journalist, broadcaster. And he didn't have a tenured post as an academic, so he was nobody's disciple. So I've been thinking, as I've been doing my interviews, I've been thinking about those stories that the the um, musicians tell about their work about 
managers, about colleagues, about the timetables that they keep and about their bodies and their brains and their ageing bodies and then about music and is music medicine or is it poison? Um, so I'm using that, those kind of ideas really as uh, as the, the kind of framework, if you like, for how I'm looking at the stories that that my musicians tell they you know they're giving me clues as to how how they carry on being musicians coming back to this cocktail cocktail party idea so coming back to this idea about listening to musicians um you know we assume that we're listening to musicians for their music but actually you're more focused on their stories one of my interviewees actually said to me, we tell stories for a living. Um, that was a singer, actually. One of the things I have heard a lot is how musicians will go to the back to their ears. They'll go to the doctor um, with concerns about their hearing um, or their ears, and they'll have to go round and round in circles before they get the medical help that they need. And... Similar kind of thing in the workplace, you know, they have problems or they have things to say about the workplace, but they are not listened to as as storytellers in in words. They because they're musicians, their job is to make music, not to to tell stories. So, for me, what I've felt is these stories. They are often quite circuitous but they're fascinating and and enlightening and they tell you so much more than any you know any survey or questionnaire or any kind of laboratory type experiment that tries to answer the question what does it mean to have a musician's ear Um, and I I feel that my languages and literature background has given it this extra dimension if you like I you know wanting to get the musicians to speak for themselves but as a sort of a literature person and a language person draw out things that they may not have said before or they've said them before but they haven't really made the connections between the stories and the kind of these these big themes about workplaces and bodies and brains and aging and and being a musician actually and I think that's what my PhD is about. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's been so interesting talking to you and all these things about musicians and how they listen, I I haven't really thought about before. And especially thinking about musicians who in in ways are silenced, their voices are silenced um, because they're only expected to express music, not stories. And you've found these stories, um, it's fascinating. Thank you. Ruth Hansford is working on her PhD in the Music and Media Department at Surrey. Her PhD started off over a decade ago when she did a project on noise, music and hearing with the BBC performing groups. Ruth is also a classically trained singer and manages digitisation projects at the British Library. Joe Langton, who interviewed Ruth, is the founder of the Technicast. She finished her PhD earlier this year about the history of radiophonic art and analogue technology in electroacoustic music. 
you can listen to Joe's Technicast episode called Tinkering and Listening. This episode was presented by me, Julien Klein, and together with Polly Hember, we invite researchers in the arts and humanities to present their work here. That's all for today's episode. Our next theme will be practice, and to kick it off, Victoria Berger will discuss how craft can create a counter-hegemony, and she's going to discuss it through her work with porcelain. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. You can also subscribe to the Technicast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Techne for their support, and on behalf of Polly and myself, thank you for listening.